Hey, a little public service announcement before we kick the show off. As you know, we use ads to support this podcast. And every once in a while, you're going to hear an ad for a company that we are explicitly covering. And that is the case in this episode. I want to make it very clear, though. Our sponsors do not have any influence on the regular content of our podcasts. Now, we do occasionally run sponsored episodes, and when we do, we clearly label them in the title on the feed and at the start of the episode. Just so there's no question, we wanted to explicitly call this out. Our editorial decisions are independent, and when we do have sponsored content, we'll make sure that you know that. And that brings me to the sponsor messaging of this show. The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is focusing on electric vehicles. Did you know that 20% of EV drivers in the U.S. are in PG&E's service territory in Northern California? But the electric revolution cannot happen with single drivers alone. So PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. Get in touch with PG&E's EV specialists to find out how you can take your transportation fleet electric. Don't miss out. Find out more at pge.com gtm. That's pge.com forward slash gtm the interchange is also brought to you by wonder capital the leading solar investment platform wonder gets your commercial solar projects done fast and if you're an investor wonder gets your money to projects and helps you earn up to 7.5 percent annually if you want your project financed or you want to invest sign up at wondercapital.com gtm This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome. This week, we dig into the PG&E bankruptcy saga. PG&E's restructuring is one of the biggest in U.S. history, and it could be considered the first climate bankruptcy. The utility faces tens of billions of dollars in liabilities after investigators pinned 18 wildfires on PG&E equipment. The company has a new board and CEO with mixed reviews. The future structure of the utility is still uncertain as it moves through bankruptcy proceedings. And California lawmakers are struggling with how to both protect and penalize utilities for wildfire damages. So this week, we're going to explain, to the best of our ability, what it all means. Shale Khan is my co-host. He's managing director at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. He's with us from Berkeley, California. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. So your microphone is being powered by PG&E electricity, so you couldn't get much more intimately connected to the subject at hand today. That is true. I am a PG&E customer myself. Um, Actually, I I remain a PG&E customer, but I am also a a newly minted customer of my local community choice aggregator, East Bay Community Energy. So So does that change anything? Not particularly. I, I mean, I get I get a bill from East Bay Community Energy, uh, but you know, PG&E is still delivering my power. With us is a reporter who is intimately connected to the utility in a different way. She has been deeply reporting on the PG&E story, perhaps more than anyone. It is Catherine Blunt, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal who covers renewable energy and utilities. She is with us from Houston, Texas. Hey, Catherine. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks for being here. You started at the Journal after moving over from the Houston Chronicle in November of last year, I believe, just as this PG&E story unfolded. Seems like uh, it pretty quickly consumed you. Impeccable timing, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is an easy story to get consumed by. It is one of the most consequential bankruptcies in history, not only because of what may happen to PG&E, but also how the outcome is going to shape the way we think about protecting infrastructure and paying for climate damages. So, Shale... 
we should probably start with some background on how we even got here in the first place, yeah? I think so, because I think this is one of these stories that's like in the news so much, especially if you're reading energy news, but even if you're not, it's in the news so much that you can kind of lose sight of it. So I do think it's worthwhile to start by stepping back and looking at a relatively brief history of PG&E, because PG&E was, you know, this is not the first time that Northern California's utility has been at the center of a sort of massive earthbending issue in the energy world. So um, maybe, Catherine, you can kind of kick us off with just the quick arc of PG&E history, starting with the first bankruptcy. Sure. Well, that was a very interesting time as well. People think about uh, the rolling blackouts and and Enron, the California energy crisis really plunged PG&E into bankruptcy the, the first time. When uh, in 1998 you saw the creation of competitive wholesale electricity markets in California, that's really where this started. You know, PG&E, Southern California Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric, the big IOUs in the state, um, all of a sudden had to buy their power from other energy suppliers in a uh, competitive spot market. And retail rates were capped. So this worked out well for a little while. But then um, come 2000, the spring of that year, wholesale rates just shot up. Um, stayed that way for a while, partly because of tighter supplies. And then be- because of the way the market had been deregulated, there was room for manipulation. You had PG&E as well as Southern California Edison paying really high wholesale prices and, and retail prices weren't moving. They couldn't pass the costs on uh, to customers. So um, ultimately it was enough to push PG&E into bankruptcy in April 2001. Uh, this was a this was a really really big problem for the state, um, for utility customers. Um, the state actually had to step in as the buyer of last resort, purchasing power um, as PG&E was wending through this process. And uh, they finally emerged in 2004, but it just called into question the entire construct of that market, and um, you know it started an entirely new chapter for the company needing to regain its financial health, get its footing again, and become uh, the company that it's supposed to be, which is providing a critical service to millions of Californians, uh, both gas and electric. So can't really overstate the importance of that. Um, that's the brief history anyway. Right. Okay. So pg e goes bankrupt uh, in 2001, comes out of it in 2004. We kind of keep as a state and as ratepayers keep paying it off for the next decade. Let's, let's fast forward to... Um, San Bruno, which seems to me to be the next major event in PG&E history. It absolutely was. In September 2010, a natural gas pipeline exploded in San Bruno, which is just south of San Francisco, uh, killed eight people. It destroyed a neighborhood and you know, resulted in a very serious investigation of the, the company's conduct um, prior to this incident. And it was determined that a certain type of, of weld used in the pipe was problematic in this scenario, and the company was uh, lacking records of these uh, types of welds um, and other records that would have been critical to assessing the safety of its natural gas pipeline system more broadly. And uh, ultimately, the company was convicted on criminal charges, which is really quite unusual, went to trial. Um, and ultimately, the company was put on probation at the start of 2017, 
federal probation that has sort of been dictating its conduct ever since. Uh, as part of all of this, it's had to seriously improve its natural gas transmission system, implement other safety changes, um, and it's broadly speaking, kicked off a, an examination of the company's safety culture um, and what that means and whether or not it's historically operated as safely and responsibly as it can. So I think that's one of those things that if you're not in California, you might forget, which is that the conversation about sort of PG&E's safety culture and its ability to maintain its infrastructure safely began earlier, um, not just in the past couple of years as we started to see these wildfires hit. It was already underway. And as you said, the utility was on probation um, thanks to the San Bruno incident. So then move forward again to, I guess, 2017 and 2018. Just give us the quick sketch outline of what happened with the wildfires. Right, right. So there was a very serious rash of wildfires in October 2017 in Northern California, killed dozens of people. State, state investigators ultimately found that PG&E's equipment uh, was involved in the ignition of 17 of those fires. And uh, that opened the company to the possibility of paying enormous liability costs, to say nothing of what that could potentially say about the safety of its system. Um, and so the company had been grappling with that. In, in November of 2018, another massive massive fire broke out in Northern California, this time around the town of Paradise, which is in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada range. And uh, that the cause of that fire is still under investigation. It needs to be made very clear. But the company has said that it, it thinks that one of some of its transmission equipment played a role in starting this fire, which was the deadliest in California history, it killed 85 people, wiped out the town of Paradise, uh, really kind of hard to overstate the destruction um, and what it could mean for the company if it's actually determined that its equipment played a role in that ignition. So we do want to be careful about attributing the cause to the wildfire. But as you said, PG&E says it's likely that equipment did cause that wildfire, which brings us to this very big and somewhat scary question about how they're maintaining infrastructure and perhaps how other utilities are maintaining their infrastructure as well. And you and Russell Gold at the Wall Street Journal recently broke an amazing story about the Caribou Palermo Lime, which is this extremely old transmission lime that went through a rural part of the state that may have been the cause of that fire in November. And they had been talking about updating that line since 2013, and they kept delaying it and delaying it. This line, I think, goes back to the 30s. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. And it had some pretty severe problems. The, the lines were dipping way too close to vegetation. They hadn't had anybody up on the towers in many years. But they kept pushing back maintenance of that particular line. Can you tell us about what you found in your reporting and why this is such a big deal? Absolutely. That So, yes, you're right that this transmission system uh, was built out in the 30s uh, as part of the infrastructure needed to carry power from the hydroelectric generation that's up there in the mountains to the towns below. This particular line, which has been under investigation, um, the towers on this line hadn't been replaced in perhaps the entire existence of, of this line. The, the company had no records of it. In looking at the maintenance history, we wanted to, to know more about 
the work that had been done on it or, or hadn't been done on it. And we realized that the company had asked federal regulators for money to do improvements on this particular line. They'd, they'd been asking for years. And, you know, some of that work involved making sure that, you know, the lines were spaced adequately, there was enough clearance, uh, that it was up to par with compliance standards. And, um, year after year, they, they put it off for reasons we're really not quite sure about. Uh, of course, the line was shut down in, in the aftermath of the fire. They recommissioned it, got it up and running again, and uh, climbed up to, into the towers in December and realized that there were enough safety concerns with this particular line that they had to shut the entire thing down indefinitely until they were able to complete a more thorough safety inspection. Part of that's attributable to age, but you know, there's also interesting questions raised in looking at the maintenance history. So one of the most wild things about this story was the complete lack of information that PG&E had about their infrastructure. And, you know, I've been covering the energy business for a long time, and it's a cliche at this point to point out um, how much, how little information that utilities have about the, their their infrastructure. But I didn't realize how bad it was. And in some cases, they use big paper maps on a wall with string and tacks to map out where their lines are. Um, California has been trying to modernize uh, data availability for utilities, and utilities have kind of struggled to keep up with requirements for modernizing their information. But this was a pretty big problem, and and that lack of information had very severe consequences. Talk about the kind of information that PG&E has on their lines and how disconnected that is from what they ne- actually need. Sure. That was another really very interesting thread. I've been looking into the types of projects that the company ha- had been proposing over the last several years, and I quickly came to realize that a lot of it had to do with asset management, data management, getting a better grasp on the state of its infrastructure, bringing all of that information into a couple of databases in which they could more easily uh, understand what was doing what. <laughs> I mean, just to, just to put it simply, um, a lot of this information that they had about their, you know, their distribution lines and their transmission, I mean, all kept in separate databases and they wanted to centralize all of this. And um, they also wanted to do a better job at actually getting some electronic maps of a system. As you point out, they didn't have a program in place until 2015 in which they were able to finally phase out these paper wall maps and push pins that they'd been using in some of their operation centers throughout the state. And that's that's sort of striking. And it's striking, especially when you consider the size of PG&E's territory. It covers 70,000 square miles. And so, I mean, of course, they've got reams and reams of data at their disposal. And the real challenge for the company has been using it effectively. Um, it's been, you know, siloed in, in different programs and housed in different places that I think made it really difficult for employees to have a holistic and comprehensive understanding of, of the system. And especially as it relates to like the age of the assets and the health of the assets, they were saying certain databases lacked really critical information, such as when something was installed, gaps dating back to the 1970s and the 1980s. And so I think that the, a real problem for this company has been trying to figure out how to most effectively complete this massive undertaking that was very expensive. Um, they had, I, it seems, fallen behind in some of this modernization and sort of snowballed and creating just kind of 
challenges and rolling out the technology that they needed. They, they have made some headway for sure, but they're still in, in the middle of completing a, a field asset inventory to get a better sense of, you know, actually what's the status of all this equipment out there? We need to go check and we need to see it and we need to, you know, fill these gaps. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about how the state of California is grappling with how to pay for these wildfire damages and how that might impact utilities. First, though, PG&E is still very focused on vehicle electrification. And if you're a company in PG&E service territory, now is the time to begin electrifying your fleet with PG&E's help. You can take advantage of limited time incentives today. You can get educated, gain access to information, and make the smart choice to make your fleet electric. And once you make the choice, don't go it alone. PG&E is there to help. The utility provides substantial financial and logistical support to get you deploying EVs faster. And with new commercial EV rates from PG&E, fueling your fleet becomes simpler and likely cheaper. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists and learn more by heading over to pge.com gtm. Wonder Capital is also a backer of the show. They can help you, the commercial solar developer, secure financing for your project. And if you're adding storage, Wonder can help there too. Through its innovative underwriting platform, Wonder is financing 100 kilowatt to 5 megawatt solar PV projects, including those for nonprofits, community solar developments, virtual net metering, and PV plus storage. Find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next commercial solar project at wondercapital.com gtm. It's a good segue into what to me is like the most kind of the most frustrating but fundamental question, um, which is how to ascribe blame here, not to whom to ascribe blame necessarily, though that's a separate question, but how to think about what exactly went wrong. Clearly something went wrong, right? And you you either could say something went wrong specifically in, in 2017 and 2018 with the wildfires, or if you want to tie in San Bruno, you can say something went wrong with PG&E's safety culture. Either way, obviously something something went wrong and needs to be fixed. But what exactly that something is, is sort of hard to pin down. And to your point, with the, as it pertains to wildfires, you know, PG&E has a big task ahead of it. I saw some stats from PG&E in its own um, wildfire mitigation plan. They estimate there are more than 100 million trees adjacent to it to their overhead power lines with the potential to either grow into or fall into lines. So if vegetation management is one of the big issues that they have to deal with, they have 100 million trees to deal with. They also have, you know, they're, like you said, a big territory. They have 8,400 line miles of TND lines that are in what are called tier three, which is extreme risk wildfire zones. That's more than a quarter of all of PG&E's lines. So they clearly have both a big task to try to do wildfire mitigation and planning, but they also clearly didn't do it sufficiently. And so I wonder to what extent at this stage in this long forensic process that the bankruptcy proceeding will become, what do we know about what went wrong? Can we pinpoint anything, this slow adoption of new technology and asset management? Was there a cultural issue? Were there individual people who were you know, deprioritizing safety or wildfire mitigation? Like, what do we know? It's a, it's a very interesting question. And I think that, you know, the answer is perhaps best understood with a little bit of historical context in that 
for, you know, California has always faced wildfire risk. And for a long time, it was generally understood that this risk was highest in Southern California, which meant that the two big Southern utilities, Southern California Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric, had to pay pretty close attention for what this meant for their infrastructure. And, you know, San Diego Gas and Electric saw that very clearly after the witch fire. And in, in the, in the years, I would say that these utilities were working pretty hard to strengthen their systems. It wasn't widely known the degree to which wildfire risk had become more extreme in PG&E service territory. And so then after San Bruno in that post 2010 era, the company did do quite a bit to overhaul its gas business, um, implement a safer culture, a greater focus on, you know, serving customers, getting records in order, doing everything that had been um, flagged as a problem prior to the explosion. And, you know, meanwhile, you've got the electric T&D business. Largely speaking, I think the focus there was on procuring renewable energy to meet California's really ambitious goals. And I think that there was a, at least some distraction too with the overall changing business model for the electric utility. You've got CCAs cropping up throughout the state and so, you know, other, other questions about how the utility is going to survive going into the future. It was, you know, the, tw- I think the 2017 and 2018 fires, um, certainly raises questions about whether or not they'd been doing, you know, doing enough to trim trees away from the lines. You know, have they been dedicating enough time and resources to, you know, fix aging equipment, trans- both transmission and distribution? And I think the, the company, has recognized this and pledged to do so much more going into the 2019 wildfire season, but it's undeniable at this point that the company is playing catch up and trying to mitigate this risk. We should, though, talk a little bit about one element to this that is California specific and not just because it's in wildfire territory. Catherine, you mentioned liability of a sort a little bit earlier. The thing that has made this uh, whole situation particularly problematic for PG&E is this one rule in California known as inverse condemnation, um, which if I can summarize it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, basically it says that if a, if a wildfire is caused by PG&E's equipment, whether or not PG&E did anything wrong, whether or not there was any misconduct, um, PG&E is still responsible for paying the cost of any property damage as a result. And PG&E may be able to recover some of that through rates, but it's uncertain and it comes after the fact. And so that single rule, the inverse condemnation rule, is basically what sent PG&E into bankruptcy after the wildfires in 2017 and 2018. The governor Newsom, the governor of California, just put out this new proposal um, that may ultimately be the sort of segue into changing inverse condemnation in one way or another. But I want to make two points about that proposal. The first one is that it was the result of one of the first things that he did when he came into office, which is that he convened a strike force to uh, address the wildfire issue. And this was the this was the paper that came out of the strike force. And I just wanted to note that um, if I do nothing else in life, at some point in my life, I will convene a strike force to do something. 
<laughs> the second point that I was going to make is that actually the re- the response to Governor Newsom's um, proposal, which I- it'd be good for you to maybe outline briefly, but the response um, has been really interesting. I'll just give you a quote. This is from uh, Julian DeMullen-Smith, who's an equity analyst covering PG&E at Bank of America. This is a quote from a, a note that he just put out. He said, we believe California Governor Newsom's widely anticipated wildfire and climate change proposal on Friday was the single most constructive update from a sitting governor in recent memory in the utility sector nationally. So he was uh, lauding it basically and saying that the that that Governor Newsom is really taking these issues seriously and grappling with all the the challenges and maybe coming up with some attractive solutions. He's coming from the sort of you know, we're covering the the utility stock perspective, obviously. So there are going to be other perspectives, but could you maybe give us a quick outline of what is the governor thinking might make sense to deal with this intractable problem? Sure. So there, there's a, there's a few things. It was a pretty wide ranging set of proposals and worth noting too, that he didn't take a hard stance on what is exactly the right way forward, but rather put forth a number of proposals that um, policymakers will continue to study and debate. When it comes to the issue of liability, which of course the equity analysts are watching closely, is uh, so one idea is that there could be a catastrophic wildfire fund. Um, perhaps it's capitalized by the three utilities. Another proposal is shifting to a fault-based standard. So with inverse condemnation, uh, there is strict liability and therefore the utility is liable for uh, property damages regardless of whether or not it was at fault, this proposal would change that. And there would be a different way of, of assessing whether or not the utility was, in fact, liable to begin with. That would be huge for supporting the, the financial health of the, the utilities. And, um, you know, another proposal is essentially creating a fund that would sort of offer almost a, a bridge loan to a utility so that it could pay some of these liability costs. So that there's a, there's a number of different things that would, that would help Keep the keep the utilities solvent, financially healthy. PD&E stock rose quite a bit on this announcement. So did Southern California Edison, which doesn't face nearly the liability burden that PG&E does. But there's been a lot of hand wringing um, on Wall Street as to what could happen to the Southern utilities in light of what's happened to PG&E. Okay, so I think the next question for you is what we need to watch out for as this bankruptcy proceeding continues. Um, is there still a possibility that PG&E doesn't emerge from this the same way that it did in 2001 after the first bankruptcy? Could it municipalize? I mean, what are the the big questions remaining in the bankruptcy court? And when do we expect to have any kind of clarity? Um, for some time now, uh, the California Public Utilities Commission has been exploring different ideas for how the company might be restructured generally. CPUC has talked about, you know, the idea of potentially separating the gas business from the electric business, talked about municipalizing part or all of its operations. You know, it's just recently San Francisco has again taken up the idea of, um, of municipalization and, and said formally last month that they had this, uh, an initial study underway to see if this is going to be feasible in, you know, bankruptcy court itself. The restructuring, I suppose, could take a number of, of different forms. It could include elements of, of everything I just mentioned. One thing to keep an eye out for, which I wouldn't discount, 
is the idea that you could have, you know, another company step in and say that they want to, they want to buy PG&E. Now I think that you would need, you definitely, definitely need some regulatory clarity in order to, for, for another company to take on the sort of risk that a California utility carries right now. But that could be a potential game changer. I think that we should, we should be, we should be aware of. Um, another really interesting question that's playing out in bankruptcy court right now is what is going to happen to PG&E's uh, power purchase agreements. Now, we'd mentioned earlier that one thing that had been focused on uh, in the last several years, more than that, is um, you know obtaining wind and solar. A lot of its power purchase agreements um, are pretty out of the money now in that they, they, per- they signed these contracts when prices were much higher. And so the company wants to reserve the right, potentially, to you know, exit or, or renegotiate some of these contracts, given that rates have changed so much, and it's unclear at this point whether that's you know the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy judge or the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and it'll be interesting because a number of people said it could have implications for the, the market and wind and solar developers in California, and um, it's unclear exactly what effect it would have on the market, but I think it's it's certainly a significant development to watch. Well, we will continue to watch those developments on the pages of the Wall Street Journal. And uh, we appreciate your reporting. And thanks for coming on and, and giving us the latest on this wild story that's going on in California. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Catherine Blunt is a journalist over at the Wall Street Journal. She reports on renewable energy and utilities. And she was with us from Houston, Texas. Shale, you got your wish. She wanted to go really deep on PG&E and we did that successfully. Is that what you think? I feel like we could have done another 10 hours. We haven't even like <laughs> we haven't scratched the surface of like the bankruptcy court versus the probation court. We haven't talked about any of the new Oh man, there's so much more. We we have to uh we have to do what we can with the hour that we have. But thank you Catherine. Thank you Shale. This is The Interchange. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you don't subscribe already, well, then go ahead and do that. And then give us a rating and review and help others find this podcast as well. You can find us on social media. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.